0: Well, today we are wrapping up our series on the Bible. Uh, We've spent six weeks, as you know, working through it. I did want to give you a little bit of a roadmap for where we're headed from here. Uh, Those who have worshipped with us through the Advent season before know we have a little bit of a tradition here at Bento to carve out the month of December, the weeks leading up to December, is what we like to call our Emmanuel series, God With Us. Every year we encourage people from the congregation to, to come up and share parts of their testimony, their story, how God has proven or demonstrated himself to be with them throughout their life and throughout challenges. Uh, That tradition is one of my favorite of this church. We've had so many times in the past where we've just heard powerful stories of how God has worked in people's lives, but also an opportunity to get to know each other at a deeper level. And so uh, we'll be doing that beginning next week for four weeks leading up to Christmas, uh, Christmas Day itself. I'll be speaking, but as we move into the holiday season, I'm really, really looking forward for the people who are going to be sharing with you. And so uh, one of my favorite traditions. So we've got that coming up. And then that leads us into the New Year's. Um, We'll be doing another topical series through the beginning of the New Year. Uh, I've already been working on it a little bit, but I want to take a look at the topic of offense. Many of you may not realize, but the idea of being offended or offense is really one of the major biblical themes. Jesus will say things at places like, blessed are those who are not offended by me. But also Jesus recognizes that offense will come, and near the end of time, that offense will grow worse. So we'll be doing a little series through January, probably February and March leading up to Easter, taking a look at conversations Jesus has throughout the Gospels and how we understand this world in which, I don't know if you've noticed, but people seem to be so easily offended and how that offense might be keeping us from hearing the things that Jesus has to say to us. Really looking forward to that series of conversations with Jesus. And then, of course, moves us into the Easter season and then back into a book study for the rest of the year. So some good things to come But today we're finishing up the series, People of the Book. Uh, This has been a really fascinating study because we've been able to look at so many different topics over the six weeks. If you think back, we've talked about the credibility of the Bible, what it means for the Bible to be true. Barry gave us a great sermon walking us through the Bible as a miracle, how we got the Bibles that we have in our hands today today. We've talked about how to study the Bible, how to read the Bible for yourself, why we should not be only hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well, how to live it. But I think in this final week, there's one more piece that's really critical for us to put into place. I think that it's a really important point for you to store away and to possibly even use as a test of your own biblical reading. The right response to scripture is humility and obedience, but it is also worship. You have not really encountered the Word of God if it has not stirred your heart to understand the glory of God, the holiness of God, to move you into a disposition of worship towards Him. So, if I had to put a title to the final one, I'm trying real hard to follow the pattern here. So, uh, the Bible is true, the Bible is hard, the Bible is a miracle. Uh, This week, I would say this to you The Bible is worship. As simple as it sounds, I think it's a true statement. To read the Bible well is to recognize not just what we are called to do by it, but to recognize what God has done for us. That ultimately, this book of scripture is not only the revelation of God, but also the revelation of what God has done. And so to read it well is to recognize that it demands a kind of response. We do not initiate this work, this conversation with God, but we find ourselves responding to what he has already done for us it being the week of Thanksgiving, we could say that that response is gratitude, or we could say that it is an act of worship. There's a tendency by many to read the Bible or to perceive the Bible as a rule book, that it basically exists for you to learn things, for you to figure out what you should and shouldn't do, and to go and live as it's instructed you to do. But to read the Bible and put it down and find only motivation for action and not be moved to worship is really to miss the entire point. You can read the Bible, believe it or not, and become obsessed with all the details about what you should do and what's been promised to you and how you should live and miss entirely the part about what God has already done. Maybe that's surprising, but I think the truth is people do it all the time. They do it today, they've also done it in times past. We pick up ethical lessons, we draw moral conclusions, we make judgments about ourselves and the world around us, Perhaps God is there as some sort of powerful referee who's calling the shots, making decisions about good and evil, calling the balls and strikes, wins and losses. But you can read the Bible and not fully understand that it is primarily about God and what he has done. That tendency is actually a very, very old one, to turn the Bible into another form of self-obsession and miss the thing, the need beneath it, that draws us to God. You might remember that having been miraculously delivered by God from Egyptian slavery, having been given the divine law, this revelation of God himself, God longing to dwell in their midst and lead them as his people, the Hebrews pretty quickly fell into quarreling and complaining about the conditions. Worship became at best for them a kind of regulated formality. What they were really thinking about was themselves. What they wanted, how they wanted it, and how they could get it. The Pharisees, in Jesus' day, did the same thing. If there was ever a people of the book, to use our title, then surely it would have been the Pharisees. They took the scriptures more seriously than most of us could ever imagine. They read it and studied it. They memorized it. They created complex lifestyles and rules and regulations to ensure that they followed every possible detail of its requirements. And yet Jesus was constantly criticizing them for not really understanding what it said. Isn't that remarkable that you could memorize, in some cases we believe some of the teachers and scribes had the entire Old Testament memorized, that you could know it all, forwards and backwards, every detail in law, and yet completely misunderstand what it's actually about. Do you remember the parable Jesus offered in Luke 18 in which two men went up to the temple to pray? One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood tall in the middle of the temple and he prayed, Thank you, God, that I am not like these other men, extorters, unjust, adulterers, like the tax collector, perhaps. Instead, the Pharisee said, I fast twice a week, and I tithe of everything that I possess. The tax collector also offered up a prayer, but he could not lift his eyes to heaven. Instead, he beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus uses it as an example to say that though the Pharisee knew all of the rules and regulations and lived them perfectly, he had missed what the Bible was actually calling him to. That the tax collector, in his fundamental need, his understanding of sin, understood more about God and what God had offered by this prayer for mercy than the Pharisee had in all of his accumulated knowledge. Or maybe one more example. The Old Testament, Jesus. How about the New Testament? In the book of Revelation, writing to the church at Ephesus, God recognized how they had rooted out false teaching, one of their earlier problems in Ephesus. How they were now standing for the truth. They had understood right doctrine. But even though their theology was now well-reasoned and articulate, they were still missing something. The book of Revelation records this message for the church at Ephesus I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They had solved all of the theological questions. Worked out tests and mechanisms for figuring out true apostles from false teachers. They were enduring and steadfast in their devotion to truth and doctrine. But in the process, they had lost love. Beating their chest, unable to set aside the emotion of complaint, this first love. How easy it is to miss what the Bible is actually calling us to. Need And the recognition that that need is met by God, that our response to him is founded on what he has already done. In each example, they knew God's word. Israel had received it right there in front of them at Mount Sinai. The Pharisee had most of it memorized. Ephesus had spent a decade working out all the details of false teaching. They all knew the word of God, but they did not possess a heart for worship in response to it. It had turned into a formality, into scorekeeping, and even a self-obsession. That's the very thing that when you actually encounter the living God, the word of God, it breaks. It moves your heart to a deeper love, to a physical action of humility, to a genuine emotion. Too often Christians have had the idea that true, clean, perfect religion is didactic and calm and reasoned, and sometimes even distant, as if the only place you could encounter God would be in a library or some form of a quiet cathedral. But if you pay attention closely, when the men and women of the scriptures encountered God and His Word, they were moved in all sorts of ways. The prophets fell to the ground. Saul stripped off his royal robes, not one I'm recommending you do here publicly. When they encountered God, they danced. They sang, they clapped, they wept, they prayed in other tongues. They ran to tell one another, neighbors and friends, overcome by what they had encountered in God. They opened doors and started shouting it out in the streets. Over and over and over, when they encountered God and his word, they worshipped. They were moved to worship. I want to be really careful here because I want you to clearly understand what I'm saying, what I'm not saying. Emotionality is not another checklist item to try and prove yourself genuine in faith. I fast, I tithe, and I lift one hand during worship. Check, check, check. That's not what I'm trying to say to you this morning. You can do this very thing, turn worship into another thing you do to pass the test, to do what's rightful. The question is not, did you do the thing? But has God's word stirred all of you into response, both head and and heart, it has to be both. And any discussion of how God's work, work, word works in your life is incomplete if we don't get to this point—that at some point your heart is stirred to worship Him in response. When the heart is stirred, but never the head, we all know what that looks like—a kind of sentimentality and emotionalism that rarely can stand real tests or real pressure. But there's also a danger in Scripture. That only allowing it to work in your head and never your heart can tend towards pride and isolation and self absorption. Israel with their constant complaint, the Pharisee thinking he's better than the sinner, Ephesus thinking they had solved all the problems simply by solving doctrinal questions and having lost love. We all know this is basically true of all human relationships. True love requires knowledge and interest in the person, a genuine emotional interest. We know that if we love someone, we have to both know things about them and be emotionally invested in them for it to count. You cannot have either one. Just facts about a person doesn't guarantee a relationship, and just emotion turns into infatuation, not real truth in relationship. For the sake of a friend or a spouse, we sometimes push ourselves, challenge ourselves, To know more than we would like to and to be more emotionally invested than perhaps we would like to. But we know that this is what love does. It risks and is vulnerable, both in head and heart. If you want some help in learning how to do this, combine these two things, I think one of the best places you can turn is to the Psalms. The Psalms are particularly remarkable at doing this. And almost every Psalm does if you pay close attention. It will offer you facts about God. Theology about who God is and how God is at work around us. But almost as if the psalmist can't help from doing it, at some point in that psalm, it bursts, erupts into worship and singing, commands to tell it to the people of Israel, to clap, to play instruments, and to praise God. The psalms are full of these combinations of head and heart as full responses to who God is. I want to read this morning from Psalm chapter 19, if you've got your Bibles, and I want to offer it to you as a kind of tool. There are many psalms that can do this, but if you say to yourself, I struggle to combine these two things, head and heart, and the way in which I respond to God, then I think Psalm 19 is a good place for you to begin that work, to read, to meditate, to think, go back to that sermon about how to study a passage of scripture, apply it to Psalm 19. As you're turning to Psalm 19, you might notice that in the ESV, the psalm is titled, the law of the Lord is perfect. That's interesting. If you were here last week, it's the same phrase that James uses in chapter 1. The perfect law, the law of liberty, we talked so much about last week. Psalm 19 is fundamentally a, law, a, a psalm about the word of God, the law of God, the proper place, the perfection of the word of God in our life. But as we read it, I think you'll notice that it is both full of the head knowledge, but also this heart response of worship. Let me read it to you, Psalm chapter 19, a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's a pretty remarkable psalm. You could break that psalm down into four parts. It's the way I want to work through it. You'll see it's pretty simple. There's paragraph breaks that break it into four paragraphs the heavens, the law, the requests, and then finally, this closing, the mouth and the heart. The psalm opens with this line of the heavens declaring the glory of God. This is a psalm about the goodness of God's law. Remember the title? the perfect law. But it opens not with a depiction of God's word, God's law, but instead the worship of the heavens above. I think this is a really profound idea that David opens this psalm with. David does not say that the heavens and the earth are beautiful and therefore they move me to worship. He doesn't say that great scenery like I have outside my royal palace makes me feel inspired to sing a worship song. He doesn't say the outdoors is my church, and this is where I experience God. He says that all of the heavens and earth are already worshiping and declaring the glory of God. When we wake up each day, we step out into a world that is already at worship, a world which is already declaring the glory and goodness of God. We aren't moved to worship as if we're starting the whole thing. Instead, we recognize what is going on around us and join in on the worship that is already taking place. We walk into a sanctuary already filled with the songs and praises of the creator. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day to day pours out speech. The nights reveal the knowledge. All of earth is filled with this word, this revelation of God's goodness. And as the sun rises and runs its course, it reveals all things so that all things may worship God, enduring and steadfast and constant in worship. That's the first thing David says. When I wake up, the world around me is already at worship. I don't kick it off. I don't strike up the band. I don't decide to begin worshiping. I join in on what is already occurring. Perhaps you could turn that into a question for self-reflection. Each morning when I wake, do I recognize that the world around me is at worship, that I wake into that service? What most of us do, if you were honest, when I wake up is not immediately think, let me join in the worship of the world taking place around me. I roll over and pick up my phone. I wonder what's happening in the world, the breaking news headlines, the messages I missed. Do you fold your arms and, with frustration and irritation, remember the things that took place the day before, the things still to come? We don't naturally wake up into these new morning mercies that we see. Our disposition is to fret, to worry, to fear, not to worship. But David sets this psalm, this psalm about the word of God, first in this context. The world around me is declaring the goodness of God. Then he moves in paragraph two to statements about the law. Having opened in this position of worship, David turns his attention to the word of God. Notice the things David says the word does. He doesn't just say the word of God is good. The word of God is perfect. The fear of the Lord is good. He says that it makes us smarter, that it reveals to us knowledge, that it gives us righteousness. It revives the soul. It makes the wise simple. It makes the heart to rejoice. It opens our eyes. It produces a cleanness of fear. It is like gold. It's like honey dripping out of the comb. It calls us to think ahead to the great reward that is before us. Now, notice the words that David uses are not just abstract theological ideas. The Bible is true. The word of God is accurate. (laughs) This is a helpful way to live. That's not what David's saying here. What we get is this full human experience, the emotion of the goodness of God. David sees it and tastes it and hears it and feels it. The word of God being good is a whole experience, a bodily experience, an experience which stirs not just facts and details and mental ideas, but stirs him to compare it to honey dripping out of the comb, to eyes being opened to the sun, to rewards and wealth, gold before us. So ask yourself this question. When you read scripture, do you find yourself moved with that kind of physical sensation? David says that he does. And David is not turning away from any mental ideas. Clearly they're here too. The word is perfect, the fear of the Lord, it endures forever, but he mixes those facts, those details, that theology with this experience, how scripture tastes and feels and awakens his eyes. David, as he does in so many of his psalms, combines these two things, head and heart, knowledge and experience, that the word of God moves him, not just in mind, but in all of life in all of his evaluations of living. And finally comes this request from David. Notice how much has filled this prayer before, before he comes to this request. When many of us pray, we have a tendency, myself included, to begin with requests, have requests in the middle, and then conclude with requests. Most of our prayer are the things that we would like to see happen. And certainly, we have not because we ask not, we're encouraged to bring those requests But David does not fill his prayers with only those requests. He fills them with worship and meditations on the goodness of the law, and then turns his attention in this third paragraph to those requests. David's fundamental request is that of forgiveness. But the way he makes that list is pretty interesting. Forgive me of hidden faults. Forgive me of sins of presumption. And let me be blameless and innocent from great transgressions. It's a pretty fascinating list. It is pretty heady, you could say. These are uh, certainly thinking prayer requests, not just emotional prayer requests. David has thought through all of the ways in which he might sin against God. And notice how different each of those phrases are. Forgive me of the sins that I don't recognize that I've done. The sins that I've committed without knowledge of them. Forgive me of sins by which I take more than I deserve the presumptions that I make about what I need, and keep me from breaking your law in greater transgressions. Most of us would end our prayer with this point. Help me to have a better day, not to sin, to do all the things that I'm supposed to. But certainly that's a rightful prayer. But David gives us one last sentence, one last section. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It sounds like David might be describing future words, future meditations, the things that I will say or think about, let them be pleasing to you. But you could also translate the words in this final sentence. Let these words of my mouth and these meditations of my heart be acceptable to you. What David may be praying is let all of the things that I've just prayed in this psalm be pleasing to you. My meditations on worship, my thoughts about the law, my requests to avoid sin, let all of those be pleasing, both in my thinking and in my saying, mouth and heart. And then this final line, as small and as simple as it is, what the psalms do over and over again. They both begin and end with a statement about God. I know it's small, but I don't think it's a small idea. David ends as he began. The heavens declare the glory of God. The Lord is my rock and my redeemer. On this, I will speak and I will meditate. It's the same reason we are wrapping up this series here with the topic of worship. Almost always the Psalms do this, find their way back, request and petition, but back to who God is and how God is received. The thoughts, the words, eventually lead back to this place of worship, of response. The Lord is my shield. The Lord is my redeemer. The Lord is my rock. Here's what I want to say to you this morning. It's not enough for you to become really knowledgeable about scripture. I said at the beginning of this series that I wanted it to be one of the most practical series we've had, and I've done some things in sermons we've never done. We studied a passage together. We looked up words together. We talked about how to ask questions and answer them. It was practical. We also spent a lot of time talking about archaeological evidence and manuscript evidence and church history, lots that you could learn, and I encourage you to go dig and continue learning. But the New Testament reminds us that even the demons had all kinds of information, knowledge, and memorization of Scripture. Possessing all the facts, all the verses, all the information doesn't guarantee a heart that is willing to submit and worship God. It's not enough to read books. It's not enough to listen to sermons. It's not enough to study background cultures and biblical stories. At some point, God's word has to move you. At some point, it has to break the shell of religiosity that tries to keep control. At some point, it has to cause your soul to be revived, to worship, as David describes it, in all of its full human experience, head and heart. It was interesting this week as I was thinking about this psalm and worship, I was reading through those sections that David outlines in the psalm, I recognize that in many ways it's the same format we use for our times of worshiping together. When you come in here on Sunday mornings, you step into a place that I hope is already a place of worship. We don't begin with the first worship song. We step into a world that is already full of his worship, and we begin to participate and join together in it. And so we begin our services every week with worship. We should remind ourselves that it's not us beginning, but us joining in on what is already underway Another way of saying that is that when we worship together on Sunday mornings, it's not a mere warm-up so that we can get to the sermon. Let's get you a little loose and excited and thinking about spiritual things so you'll be ready for me to preach the sermon at some point. When we begin to worship, we're doing what this psalm says. We're joining in on all creation, declaring the goodness of God. We worship to join in on the reality of things, to remind ourselves that this is what is most true, and so we begin with worship. After doing that, eventually I find my way up here and we receive the word. Hopefully we're challenged by it. Hopefully it's not just my words, but scripture is presented before you. And we respond every time with prayer. We set our questions, our desires, our requests before God. God, let this word be true of me. Help me to avoid the sin that your word has encouraged me to avoid. Let me be pure before you. And then as the psalm does in its closing, we do the same. We respond in worship. Every service, begin and end in worship. Now, I'm a preacher. I studied preaching. I love preaching. I take preaching very, very seriously. But I want you to hear me very clearly say to you that the most important thing that we do together is respond to God's word in worship. If you leave here having listened to a sermon and just accumulated facts about God, then what I've given you is a lecture and not a sermon. It's only a sermon if it moves your heart to receive God and to respond to him in worship. We're only a church if we're willing to respond and to do it corporately together in worship. If what you're looking for is just facts and details, sit home and listen to the podcast. There's probably even better YouTube videos you could watch and get all of those facts and details in a more condensed time with animations and you'll enjoy it even more. We show up together not just to get facts about the word of God, but we show up to encourage one another to worship, to receive, and to respond. We hear the word of God pre- presented before us and we respond with gratitude gratitude and with worship to what God has revealed, what God has done. The end of every receiving of the word is always a response of worship. Whether it's you reading a few verses before you set out for work, whether it's a Sunday morning in which we gather together, or an afternoon in which you really dig into some problem you're trying to sort out in life through the word. Always, the way in which we respond is worship to God. We're going to do that this morning as we always do, but let me close with one final piece of scripture. I've been walking you through Old Testament, the Gospels, the New Testament, the way in which worship was so central and the temptation to have head but not heart. Let me give it to you from the final chapter, the last verses, the final image of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, in which God reminds us of those things still to come. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the streets of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it, and his servants... Will worship him. It's the final image of the Bible, the final response of humanity who has recognized and received fully of all that God has done by his grace and mercy, that there will be life and life eternal, that there will be healing and no more curse. And the response of those who have received so much from him is one of gratitude, one of worship one in which we bow, responding to this God who has revealed himself by his word to worship him again. So as we wrap up this series, as we wrap up this service, I just want us to respond to God this Sunday before Thanksgiving, in which we remember all that we have to be grateful for, that we might once again worship him, join in on that heavenly worship, respond to his word for what he has done with gratitude, with thanksgiving, and with hearts moved to worship him again. Let's close in prayer this morning and we'll worship together. Heavenly Father, we know how easy it is to get distracted by this world, to find ourselves anxious and worried by news headlines, to imagine that what's really happening is what comes in through breaking news, news programs the conversations we have with friends about the things we're worried about, the things to come. So we're reminded by your word again that this morning when we woke, we woke into a creation, a world which is declaring your goodness. That the thing which is most true around us is that you are God, that you sit upon your throne, that you are in control of all things and working all things towards the good of those who will believe So we quiet our hearts again, as David has encouraged us to do by this psalm. And we reflect again on what your word has given us how it's opened our eyes, how it's revived our soul, how it's laid before us riches greater than gold, how it is to us like honey dripping from a comb. We pray that by your spirit you would move our hearts again to sense feel and to recognize what you have given us by your death, by your resurrection, that ours is life and life eternal, that we, above all people, have so much to be grateful for this Thanksgiving, that we have you as Savior and as Lord and the hope of eternal life. So we lay before you our request this morning. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of the ways we've been presumptuous and taken for ourselves. Forgive us of the wrong we've done that we're still unaware of. Forgive us of how slow we are to perceive your goodness. And teach us to be doers of your word, that we might not transgress your law or sin against you. God, let these meditations of our heart, these words of our mouth, let them be an honor and a honor before you and God we pray that you would be before us a rock and a redeemer and that we would worship you again responding to your word all that we've learned in this series all that we've learned from the word that you've said before us in days and weeks before and those to come let in every place that we encounter you and your word let our heart respond with humility and with gratitude and with worship so we worship you this morning we are the King of kings and the Lord of the Lord. You are our hope for life and life eternal. We open our hands before you this morning and receive from you again your spirit. God, pour your spirit into us. Bring these hearts of stone to life. Raise these bones to new life, flesh restored to us. Make us alive to your word, alive to your glory. Open our eyes that we might see your goodness declared above us. And we worship you again Turn us again to prayer in a moment. Um, No big thought for you, but just a simple one as we do. Uh, I've always been grateful this is a church that takes scripture so seriously. Uh, We've worked Genesis through 2 Kings and books in the New Testament. But we can't just be a church that studies scripture. We have to also be a church that responds to God and worship. Love the Lord your God with all of your mind, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength all that we are, head and heart. So I just want to challenge you with that. Um, It begins with each of us. It begins with me as a pastor, with the worship team, with our expectations of what we do when we come together. But it's my prayer that we would be a church that takes his word seriously, but also responds with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength in worship of God. I just want to close with that prayer. Heavenly Father, We want that to be true of us. God, draw us to your word. Convict us by it. Challenge us by it. Teach us and instruct us by it. God, break our hearts. As you promised to do, turn these hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Soften them. Open our eyes to see your glory. And move us again to worship you. pray that we would do it with genuine hearts of gratitude, having sensed again as we did before your grace and your mercy, how you died that we might live, you came so that we might receive you, and you did what none of us could have done on our own. You became sin, our sin, and hung upon a cross to suffer the consequences Was vindicated and raised to life that we too, by your grace and mercy, might live and live eternal. We have so much, as David said, a treasure greater than gold. So we pray that by your spirit we might sense it again. We might go here with that sense of the heavens above us declaring your glory. And that we might raise our voices to join in with him and declare that you are holy, holy, holy. That you are good and gracious and kind. That you are savior and you are king. That you are Lord and you are coming again. That one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess That you are king of kings. And that we might rule and reign with you for all of eternity. By your grace and mercy. Move our hearts. Make us not only people with knowledge about you. But people that know you personally. People who are moved to worship you genuinely. And that God by your spirit this church. This place in which we meet. Might be a place in which we not only learn your word but a place in which we respond to it in genuine, heartfelt worship each week, humbling ourselves again, opening our mouths and declaring again your goodness. Moved again, our souls revived to worship you and alive to it. By your spirit, we pray that it would be true. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance to you and give you peace.